Hi, I'm Ray from Insert Quest here. My pronouns today are they, them, and with me is Steve D, an Australian game designer who I have followed the work of for some time now, actually. Um, it's a pleasure to have you on, Steve. Would you mind telling our listeners a little more about yourself? Uh, sure. My name is Steve D. As you said, uh, my pronouns are he, him, and um, I've been in the industry for about 20 years in various different capacities, um, mostly as a freelance role-playing game designer and writer. Um, worked on a whole bunch of different products, uh, a lot of Warhammer books, um, and uh, also a whole bunch of my own small indie games, which are up on my website. It's very exciting when I have someone that's been in the industry as long as you on. I think the closest I've gotten is maybe Olivia Hill, I think maybe, is of a yeah. similar veteran status. Um, because 20 years ago, I was se uh, seven. Yep, yep. <laughs> or eight, seven or eight. Um, so I didn't know what a role-playing game was. None of my family were into it so that's pretty wild to think of um yeah it's it's wild for me to like um you don't feel you know you don't you don't feel old in yourself but then you suddenly look and there's all these people who have completely different experiences and and, and often truncated experiences like oh you guys missed all that and that changes sort of how you view yourself and and your encounter with the hobby and uh, and you don't feel it when you're coming up um but then you get to a point where you just go, oh, actually, I've been here a lot longer than these people. There's a generational shift almost. Yeah, yeah, um, wild. Particularly these days where there's a lot more, um, people can study role-playing games and board games and write PhDs on them and things like that. And um, because of the flow-on from computer games, there's a lot wider kind of knowledge and literate basis um, uh, and a very different kind of vibe that's come with that. Yeah, I can imagine the shifts in the scene that you have seen, especially in Australia, which I feel like uh, something that has always interested me is finding out what um, the gaming hobbies, in particular role-playing games and board games, look like in other countries and stuff. So like when yep. I visited um, China, I spent a lot of time in the lead-up to that trip trying to find out how, if there were ways for me to find out what, if any, role-playing communities there were in China. Sadly, I didn't... Uh, find out any information, which is not to say that there aren't. Mm. And, um, and so I'm always excited to hear about that sort of stuff. Um, it's a lot of, like, uh, recently I've been following a lot of Malaysian game designers on Twitter because there's some really interesting role-playing stuff going on there, so... Yeah, yeah. But that's, um, all, that's all a very long-winded way of saying, what are, what are some of the interesting, exciting changes you've seen in relation to the Australian community since when you started role-playing and now? I think I, I, used, to, I used to say that you could actually, um, not just for, like, for gaming and hobbies, but you could divide Australian history into pre-internet and post-internet because so much of, how, of our life, at least since white settlement, uh, white colonisation, um, has been about the fact that we are a long way from the things that we are culturally connected to. Um, and that, um, so everything has to be, imported over a great distance and we feel very distant away from it. Um, that meant that, uh, you know, it was very, it was very difficult to feel connected to things and to have any kind of instantaneous re re relationship. Um, that, you know, I, I, I have applied for writing jobs, you know, back when I had to use post 
to write, you know, print out my submissions, mail them off. Um, oh, that must have sucked to get submissions <laughs> done. Yes, yes. Um, luckily, I sort of was. I, I came into the industry just as the internet was sort of coming in, mostly. So, and that made things a lot easier. Um, yeah, so that was, and and it just also increases connectivity so much. Um, it's just a lot easier to find people now, and 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 I mean, there's still people getting lost because um, you know the internet is is this weird scattershot thing. But um, yeah, it was very easy. Uh, I think growing up to just be like the only role player you knew, um, and then you'd meet people and you you play games with them, but they would have completely different styles or different things they wanted out of games and then you go oh you know this feels wrong um and the early days the internet back in in like the mid 90s was one of the things i found was like oh there's people out there who who think about gaming in a way that i do that that's very different from the people i've met um and yeah that was sort of one of that sort of really drove me to become a creator and and um the first thing i did was actually start making a what, what we used to what was a zine it was um which we interestingly just had a sort of uh, retrospective about. I don't know if you know about this, but Kickstarter has this month been doing a uh, Let's Remember Zines month. Was that um, Zine Quest? Yes, Zine Quest. So Z-I-N-E, which is short for magazine. Um, so back in the very, very ancient days, role-playing and board gaming and wargaming were su- su- supported by what they called zines, which were basically uh, yeah, homemade magazines. Uh, also other fandoms, you know, the original Doctor Who fans and stuff. Well, Doctor Who, there's a lot of mainstream stuff, but if you had something that only you cared about, like maybe you're the only person who remembered Press Gang, which is one of my favorite shows or something, or, you know, Blake Seven or something uh, after it had gone off the air. You would, you would get together with your friends, you'd write something up on a word processor or a typewriter, you'd go to your school or your library. And, school or a copy shop when they had yep. copy shops. Yeah, you'd run off 40 of them and you'd mail them out to all the people on your mailing list and they'd send you back $5.00. Um, and, uh, I, I can't remember who it was. I think it was, um, Andrew Rilston, who has been around forever, you know, talked about when he was working on his doctor who one, where he actually, um, stapled his finger. So his, his zine that month had all his blood all over it. Cause it was just, uh, and that's, that, that hits at how sort of intimate and small and, and cottage industry, these kind of things were. Yeah. I'm um, kind of, thankfully I am kind of familiar with zines, but I am, I'd, I'd be interested to see how many of the, if any of the listeners had not heard of them before, actually. Because mm. I'm, I'm currently working on a two-ish <laughs> games myself that are, well, one is a game, one's a game project in, that are in a zine form factor. Mm. Um, so it is, yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I think it would be nice if there were more zines within the RPG community now. Yeah, I think I saw someone at a con, it might have been GX, who had just done her own zine, and I was just really, it was just nice to see somebody going out and going, oh, instead of making my webpage, I'm actually, you know, it's the same sort of just thing that you might throw up on a webpage or a blog, but I've written it out, printed it out, did a little bit of extra effort. Um, interesting idea. Um, and they certainly, yeah, back in the 70s and 80s, there was a thing called Alarms and Excursions, which was massively important in, in getting D&D connected to people. Um and and also in wargaming communities and things like that. Yeah. Um, and the only the the thing that was sort of uh, difficult again for me feeling disconnected before the internet is we didn't have the only really magazine you could get was Dragon Magazine. Um, and I've always been the guy who doesn't play D and D that much. 
and I just I wanted to back then. That would have been yeah. What what else was around? Pendragon. Yeah. Um, there were though. There were a lot of other RPGs. There were. I mean, Gerps and stuff too. Hey. Yeah. There was. There was. There was tons and tons of RPGs. Uh, just as much as there probably are these days. There was less sort of little indie stuff, but there was a lot of lot of. Particularly in the 80s, there was a massive explosion. Every kind of thing had its own RPG, and there were so many different ways. This Palladium was big. Uh, eventually, White Wolf hit the scene, of course. Um, um, all sorts of. Things. I played a lot of Palladium, and um, we played our own system and stuff. I mostly know Palladium through the stuff that um, Roleplaying Public Radio has done, where they talk about. Palladium, so I've always it's it's an interesting historical artifact for me. It is, it is, um, and yeah, I was able to live through that. So, um, uh, um, yeah. sorry, no, 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 it's fine. Um, it's really, I mean, that experience and also that like history that you bring. I imagine that that I can see that providing a very unique perspective in terms of game design. Um, it certainly helps. Um, it's certainly yeah. something that I'm always, I've always been a game historian as well. One of the first things I did when I started making my first scene was try to write up a role-playing history as best I could because there really wasn't one in existence. And that got a lot of attention because no, there wasn't anything like that back then. Well, now um, I'm having a wild idea about it. RPG museum. Yeah, um, you've put this idea maybe. into my head. I'm sure there's probably already one, but what if there was a one in Australia? Yeah, in in Seattle, about a year or two ago, they did a an art gallery collection of of uh, gaming art from from tabletop and role playing games. Um, rock, um, yeah, and there's some. Yeah, I mean that that was. I mean, because art has been such a defining factor of some games, and so important. Um, and, and such incredible art as well. Um, so, yeah. I yep. wanted to talk to you a bit about, because um, you and I actually met at GX um, ah. very briefly. Um, right. You uh, had uh, some information there about your game, Relic, which was... Relics with an S. Sorry, with an S. Yep. Relics with an S. Which... I was very attracted to because I have always had an interest in angels. Um, ever since, awesome. ever since being raised Catholic, angels have always been the most interesting part of Catholicism for me. And to be honest, it's not really a part. <laughs> um, no, uh, it's kind of fandom content. Um, but uh, I. I have always found angels to be super interesting and compelling um, and engaging kind of beings in ways that we have interpreted angels. And I'm always enticed when I see some new game or media that uh, includes angels or angel-like beings as, uh, as a thing. So when I saw your game, I was like, ooh, angels, and was immediately immediately sold and so i've been following it uh, closely since can you tell our listeners a little bit about what relics is as a game um and where your idea for it uh so i'll just do a quick summary first so relics is a game where uh the players take the role of fallen angels they're not fallen as in they're sinful they've fallen from heaven to live amongst humans uh they're sort of half 
in our world half in another. They're not particularly, they're not flesh human, uh, or, or they don't live, or, uh, breathe, or eat, or sleep, but they um, can't go back to heaven. Um, God created the universe, and uh, the angels shaped it into being, and very quickly when they encountered humans, um, war and, and bloodshed broke out as they tried to lead humans to be better. Um, so God forbade angels to interfere, and some of them disagreed with that, wanted to control the thing that they had built, so they became the demons. Um, and there was a great war going on, but they didn't want to destroy creation, so some angels uh, inside to fall to fight the battle on Earth. And so you've got these figures who are um, walking along the Earth. They have a limited ability to understand the world that they're in. Um, so we've taken uh, references from a lot of the uh, most famous angel films and stories out there. Um, and yeah, you are, you are trapped on Earth. You have a limited amount of power. You have limited understanding of where you are. And you're trying to uh, figure out, as is often the case with angels, to, you know, what, is, uh, what is your purpose? Uh, what, are you, what is your destiny? What are you here to do? And there's a lot of mysteries in the setting as well, and I'm definitely rambling. I have a much better summary than this normally. Um, no, I think that's great. I'm really liking what I'm hearing. And, and like, yeah. that was the stuff that when I saw it at GX, I was like, oh, wow, this is kind of interesting and cool. Um, you, you, mentioned that, um, you mentioned that there's mysteries and things within the setting. Yep. What, what, what form do some of those take? And what is the expectation for players to interact with. It is um, it's something that's sort of, I, I, if you look at a lot of angelic stories, there is there is often a mysterious element. Um, as It's not just that the angels appear, but there is something that is different than what we expect. You know, um, If you look at uh, the prophecy, for example, there's this war going on between the angels, which has sealed off heaven, and human souls haven't been going to heaven for thousands of years because Gabriel has started a war with heaven. Um, there are elements in the book that are presented to the players that only give you some of the picture. So it's one of those, those games where there are secrets in the back uh, for the GM. Um, God has also left at this point. Um, if you think about Preacher, God's gone missing um, or rather has closed the doors of heaven. Most angels believe this because she wants to lead the final battle between angels and demons without risking the fate of Earth, but that means that everything on Earth, including all the angels and demons who fell, are now completely cut off from heaven forever, um, and some people aren't very happy about that. So the question is, can we reopen the gates? Where's God gone? Um, what are the other shadowy things that are going on? Do the humans know? Um, there are different factions. Uh, there are things that angels don't know about um, that are sort of subtly hinted, um, but plans of demons and the plans of angels. And, um, yeah, it's actually a book I, I find that it's very much um, full of secrets and layers. And um, that means that once you read through it, you actually have a different understanding of some of the information that you've got at the start. Now, obviously, if you have a, have a book that has secrets at the end, there's a spoilers element. Um, there was, you know, there's been a few White Wolf games like this. Trinity was one famously where they kind of didn't put... The it reminds Spot. me a little bit of um, Eclipse Phase has an element to that too, where they have yes. the GM section has like, here's a bunch of potential explanations for why things in the setting are this way. 
Yeah. Yep. Almost none of them are hard rules. It's a lot like, maybe this is like that because of this thing. Or if you think that's dumb, do something else. Yeah, we, we, we have a uh, section about, here's, we have a big section of here's one version, and then we have a section of here's several other possibilities that are also, you know, if you, if you like these better, um, you can run with those. That was something. Uh, about, and that means you, sorry. you can play it. That means you can play it multiple times, basically. Um, yeah, yeah. You can explore kind of the same... Um, you could potentially explore the same aspect of the mystery, but present the answers. In, yeah, the answers will be different. But we also have enough mysteries that you can actually play it lots and lots of times as yeah. well. We can find out this aspect or that aspect or you know, who created the humans or what, what is this about? What are these things? Um, where's that angel? Um, yeah, Las Vegas was, of course, a big inspiration. Um, that's James Wallace's sort of indie game, which is um, about being trapped in a strange version of Las Vegas and losing your memory. Um, but it also has a secret to it. It has a thing that you're supposed to... It's designed mostly to be played through once and reveal a secret. Um, so if you have read the whole book um, you, you, or played through it once, you can't really play it again. There are spoilers. So there's, there's, a, there's a room for this, I think, people... Uh, and I hope people will take some respect on the spoilers. I, I remember, as I said, Trinity was a game that when it came out, they weren't, they didn't put the spoilers in the first edition. And people were like, oh, I'm a GM, I need to know these things. So they reprinted it with more of the stuff in the back. Um, and uh, that was sort of, it's, it's, it's a tough because there's an expectation if you're a player and you, if you go and buy the book and you're not a GM, it's like, oh, read everything up to here and then stop. Um, and yeah, some people are like... Some... some, some uh consumers will have a problem with that. Oh, I'm not meant yeah. to read this part. Um, personally, I find, that, I find that I find the choice inherent there interesting. It's like, oh, wow, do I... Yeah. Do I want to commit to being... to having a certain level of my play experience changed by choosing to read this extra information? Um, yeah, yeah. And it's up to you, and there's... I'm sure your de- your dealer, as we call them, because you're dealing tarot cards, uh, will be able to surprise you even if you do read it. Um, but um, it's going to be interesting to see how people react to that and, and use it. Um, so I had another question about sort of the game design aspect of it. Mm. What is the central play loop or the central play expectation? There are different ways of expressing the same idea basically but uh the question is you know what do what are the players expected to engage in as their core activity um blades in the dark is we're gonna go and do heists dungeons and dragons is we're gonna go on adventure and that adventure is gonna be going into dungeons whatever form the dungeons take and taking things from those dungeons um we have sort of Delta Green is investigatory, but also a bit actiony. So yeah, um, there are three sort of basic modes that we cover in the GM section. Um, the thing that Relics has that, that sort of makes it unique is that when angels uh, fall to earth, all their power is trapped into this mystical object, and the power stays there even if the angel dies. And angels are also able to sort of destroy their physical form and put their soul into it, giving a, a, the item a kind of intelligence. And that's why there's all these myths in human history of, of mystical beings giving magical objects or being related to magical objects that get pl- placed in the hands of simple humans. Um, but this means that throughout history, you've got all these magical items that are waiting to be discovered. So we have this element of Indiana Jones 
Lara Croft, Tomb Raider kind of thing. Um, and you can do it as a, as a MacGuffin of the week rather than a monster of the week this week where it's this item. Um, and in that mode, you can be uh, hunting for it. Like, you know, it's somewhere lost in history, but we have to find the research and dig that up and then, you know, have an adventure and track it down and find the Holy Grail. Or it can be a heist. You know where it is, but you have to steal it. I mean, it's something like um, Hudson Hawk. You know, you can even go if you want. It's a very over-the-top film, but it's a very good heist film. Um, and the other one is the sort of horror mode where someone is there's a demon or a relic that is making people act in an evil manner and it's causing damage and killing people. And that's sort of like the monster of the week kind of option. Um, very investigative. It's like, why are these people dying? Where's the threat? How do we find it? How do we neutralize it? So those are the sort of three basic modes. It's, it's all going to be investigative and finding mystical objects and fighting demons, um, but with an undercurrent of self-exploration as well because of the way the uh, um, flashback mechanic works. Would you? Can you tell us a little bit more about that self-exploration uh, aspect? Because I think, yeah. I think we are seeing a lot more at the moment that... Um, a lot more games at the moment are popular because they have some kind of, it's not just about killing the monsters. It's what, yep. do, what drives us to kill monsters and what do we feel when, when we kill these monsters? How, what is this, what is the emotional act that resonates through the physical? Um, so I yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's certainly there is certainly a, a lot of philosophical questions baked into this, as as I think there should be with angelic myth, mythology, because it asks the questions about what is what is our reaction to evil, and the factions that you take on, uh, the six main factions have different philosophies about their role as angels and towards evil and towards uh, you know, how how they should react to that. Um, the flashback mechanic is basically because angels, we assume, have been on Earth for at least several centuries, often thousands and thousands of years, um, maybe even hundreds of thousands, there's no way to have a set skill list. So we have a mechanic that is very much based on sort of the, the TV conceit of whenever there is something that the character would know, uh, we have a flashback uh, to them learning that skill or using that skill in the past. If they need oh, to pick I a lock... I love that so much. That's yeah. so good. <laughs> um, but the, and the other twist is that um, the, if you want the skill, another player narrates the flashback for you. And that means that you're not entirely sure about your own past, which is a very different kind of approach. It means you have to lose a lot of control over your sense of character when you play the game. You will find out things about yourself that you might not like, um, uh, about your character, but about in, in that sense of... of uh, you know, for example, we had a character in one of the playtests where um, he was sort of building this idea that he, he was, his angel angelic um, persona was someone who tended to find his way into law enforcement in every generation um, and was trying to sort of be this embodiment, you know, police aren't perfect, but I'm going to be the one good cop. Um, and then someone else was narrating a scene where he had to take a bribe. And he was like, okay, I think I believe I'm the one good cop. But obviously now I realize that I'm not who I, completely who I think I am or who I present myself as. And so you're an unreliable narrator in that sense. You, are, you present one thing and then you find out more and more about your past um, as the game goes forward and on a, on a larger and larger scale as well because as, obviously the mystery can be, you know, what is the purpose of creation or, or 
where did humans or gods or come from and these kind of massive questions about the fate of the universe and you can then flash back even to, to sort of more of that information um you know that perhaps you knew about or saw or lied about um so you have these angels who have, may have done you know maybe you were the person who um you know uh told Mary about her child or, or were the person who personally wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe you were there and watched it happen. Let it happen. Um, did, the, did you make the choice to have the flashbacks narrated by, the, by another player to kind of reinforce the, I guess, not the tone, but the sensation of being out of place and having almost too much history personal history to remember accurately was that i think you briefly mentioned that earlier as an aspect yeah, that, that, of being disorientated on the earth is that why you chose that mechanical exploration it was sort of a, a, ha a happy uh, side effect that it sort of creates this sense of a little bit of disconnect yeah um but it, it just was something that sprang to mind as a way to really connect players together um because because the other thing about the narration element that we have is that the reason that the other player is narrating it is that they were there um, watching you do the thing. Um, so you have this long connection of interrelatedness. That was what we were really original. Uh, so you're about. learning, you're kind of, it brings all of the angels together into this. That's right. Um, and you actually, that's right. You start and you start the game before you actually play anything by going around and your initial skills are based on, memories that the other angels have of you um and that form their their main um impressions of you so you know um and that's obviously the most you know the things that you will have as your starting skills are well i remember that time that you know you rained down fire and brimstone on on sodom and gomorrah and you're very good at lighting fires or endurance or whatever it happens to be um uh the player can then choose the skill so they have some control um, uh, from the from the narration, but um, it it does create this sense of shared, and then of course you get to give one back, so you can always turn it around and give it from your point of view, which gives you that kind of Rashomon kind of feel of that's what you saw, but this is how I saw it, um, and I was in this, it was that same event, but here's what you were doing, and I you know I was completely blameless, um, and and you can play around with perceptions and and. That also ties into one of the themes of the game is about uh, how memory works um, because these are all memories and memory is a thing that is is not the same as what actually happened. Um, mm, yes, indeed. One of the conceits is that the reason that we do this is that angels can't do what humans do, which is have automatic memory. Um, so we learn things and then we forget about them. Like you can remember... Um, when you maybe learn to ride a bike, but you can't remember maybe the first time you learned that um, Columbus discovered America or things that just sort of go into your brain as information. Or, or you, you can't remember when you first learned a certain chord on the guitar. You just know it now. Um, muscle memory and things like that. Um, and the conceit is that um, angels not having brains like humans or living things have none of that um, memory. So everything that they remember is an experience. Um, they, so when they... They are... Yeah, wow. I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that, like, humans have that limitation because we have a finite lifespan, but I suppose if you didn't have a finite lifespan, why wouldn't you remember everything? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, wow, interesting. It's super interesting, um, this aspect of it. And, I mean, a, a pretty standard question that I'm sure if you're doing other interviews, you will get this question. What does mm-hmm. advancement look like in the game? I feel like I feel like I can deduce the answer to this. Like, you gain new skills when you, like, describe past experiences and stuff. But yeah. Is there any other um, mechanically in uh, mechanically structured um, yep. advancement, like you know, D and D has leveling up or whatever. There are there are two ways you you get you get more memories as you go forward. Basically, you you can whenever there's an appropriate scene that you need to learn a skill, you can have a flashback, and there's a limit to how many you can do per session, and you will then get more every time that you flashback, and and then so next time you need to use that that endurance skill you won't have a flashback because you already got the skill but it's uh you will add skills to as you learn more and more about your past so there's an inherent growth system there we also have uh the so the um the angels lose their power in their relics when they fall their powers are contained in the relics and not able to be uh accessed but when god closed the gates of heaven all the relics began to wake up again so uh, relics have gone from this sort of uh, inert thing to these things that are coming alive and there are every character every player has a uh, what we call a signifying tarot card and when that tarot card comes up during play you get a new miracle as you're reconnecting with your relic and so every session or so you're going to get a new power as well and it'll get lot the powers go um, bigger and bigger as, as your campaign goes on we've sort of set it up to have a kind of three act structure to the game so whether that's three sessions or six or nine it's designed for relatively short play, not more than about six or nine sessions per game, um, with some with some tweaking. Obviously, there's some advice in the dealer section for making longer games. Um, but yeah, so I like you're the getting in symbolism there of three, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, a lot of symbology and and. Uh, um, for anyone that is not that familiar with Christian symbology, which I would be surprised by, but it's not un. Impossible. Uh, three is a very important number in Christianity because you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost in Catholicism, in particular. Other um, instances of threes being important and Holy Trinity. When you say the Holy Trinity, you are referring to. We have seen a Holy Trinity Church or a Church of the Trinity. It's referring to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three divisions of God, in a way. Um, yeah, um, uh, I'm a big fan of um, Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum, which is a, basically a book about how hermetic thought uh, and conspiracy theories work on the human brain. And there's a lot of that kind of spirit in the sort of uh, occult elements of the game, um, giving it that sense of like, oh, everything's connected to everything. So there's there's threes and there's sevens and there's numerology and there's, there's things that sound like other things. Um, you know, the Masons and the Templars and all those kind of conspiracies. Um, and that encourages you to, when you write your history of your angel, you know, to, to connect into this sort of ancient conspiracy elements as well. Um, because you were, you know, you were there at every major historical event. Um, yeah, so you, sh- you, you put those threes there. Um, yep. Does, you mentioned that when uh, your... Um, signifying tarot card gets drawn in the scene, in the game. Yep. Um, in a session, uh, your miracles grow. Are the miracles like ascribed? Is there like a list of miracle powers, or it's, or is it a more free flowing? Uh, we have both, actually. Oh, okay. Um, 
Yeah, so originally I just went, here's, there's basically three levels, again. Just, I'm not, I'm not, not really necessarily obsessed with threes. It just breaks down quite easily for lots of things. Um, so there's, there's the, there's miracles that are, that are useful, but not exactly, you know, very powerful. And then there's, there's powerful and there's sort of the terrifying level, at, uh, level three. And your, your dealer can set the level of a campaign or the level of a scene. Um, and so we've got um, a series of dominions, which are uh, areas that angels control based on their herald, um, which is their, their archangel that, that uh, originally uh, led them in, in the great war against demons. Um, and um, so you have you have a, you have a, a basic dominion. You have a um, and you have levels, and so there's a list of for this dominion. Here's what the levels would approximately let you do. So you, you can construct. Uh, but we also then have a, a list, uh, a big long list of tables of examples at every level for every power, for every dominion, um, and they're all uh, tagged to to um, numbers so you can do a random card draw. Um, so if you get you're out of ideas, you can just draw a card. That's very cool. I'm very into that. Um, yeah, I like that. I like that. Designing magic powers is very much my jam. <laughs> um, I'm here for it. Um, that's so cool. Uh, I actually had some questions, or I guess it's a question, about, so with the social media for this game, in the, over ramping up over the last few months in particular, you've been, I mean, I've seen it more on, your, on the Relics Facebook than I have on Twitter, but I'm sure it's also been happening on Twitter, is um, you've been sharing a lot of, like, weird news stories and, like, ah, yes. things like that, and then relating them back to um, sort of implying that you could use this as a as a relics plot hook. But you've been saying it... I think a lot of the wording on them, it hasn't been like, oh, this is a cool relics plot hook. It's like, no, this is actually happening. These are This is real angel stuff. Um, and I've sort of been very into... I think that they've been well-crafted because they've been... It hasn't been... It's been, like, the, the bits of text that you attach to these news article links and things. It's, like, on sentence. Um, mm. And I thought that was... I, I have found that compelling and interesting. So I wanted to... Oh, that's good. Yeah. Like, how did you get the idea for that? And I just wanted you to talk about it a bit because I think it's a really interesting marketing idea. So, Yeah, and a lot of that... Like that wasn't particularly an idea that sprang out of marketing. Like we're doing, uh, we have a fiction story that's running on our Instagram, which was an idea, but that's not getting as much of a response because it's too hard to remember what happened the day before. Um, partly, it's just the way that I think. I have the ability to see patterns quite easily, and and also it's the way I designed the setting. The setting was designed to be able to be connected to everything. Um, so that from this sort of one basic idea, you can explain huge amounts of supernatural elements and stuff. Um, and I follow a few Facebook groups and Twitter feeds with weird news. Um, and once you get a few of those into your head, you, and, and you can just go, right, that's that, that's that. Um, and the idea, the way I see role-playing games is that their job is to talk to players and to the the uh the GM so that they end up thinking in the way that will create the good, the good stories or the stories that you want them to tell. And that's something that isn't just done with rules. That's something that's done with every word choice that you make and the way that you present information. Um, 
So I want you, when you read relics, to start thinking in that sense. And I've had this wonderful moments where I've sort of explained to people the mythology of the game, and then a day later they'll get on Facebook or email me and say, I saw some angels today. Those people would, you know, and they've got that in their head, and I've infected them with the idea um, of, of this mythology. And, um, yeah, that's something that I've always strived to do when I write role-playing games, to give them that sense of, I need you to feel this because once you feel it, you'll communicate it to your players. Um, the Skaven book I, I did um, many, many years ago for Warhammer, um, I worked on the sort of early parts of that book about what it's trying to communicate. One thing I always think Warhammer has been pretty good at is that it, it gets into what it feels like to live in that setting more than others um, and the psychology of the people. Um, and so when I wrote the Skaven book, I was very big on sort of de- describing know how it feels to be to live with Skaven to know that Skaven exists to, to face Skaven and then I was lucky enough to play in a game where the GM was like really creeping people out and and I was like oh I know what you're doing you're using those, those some of those ideas that I I wrote about how scary it is to sort of wake up one morning and everyone in your village has been kidnapped and there's not a you know there's there's not a, a sign of bloodshed anywhere because they've all been taken away by by Skaven ninjas um, it's worth noting for listeners that might not be aware, Skaven are oh, yes, rat yep. men. Uh, uh, yes, rat, Skaven are the uh, the, the rat men uh, of Warhammer, and they um, have this wonderful position where people sort of know that they kind of exist, but they don't believe that they're as prevalent and as dangerous as they are, and that they're right under their feet. And they're sort of... Um, so there's this sort of idea that, that that's just a silly conspiracy that people make up and then one day you wake up and the skaven are you know in your in your basement you um uh you know trading goods or 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 planning to kill you or you know their tunnels are everywhere under the city and they've replaced you know important people and um it plays into that sort of uh sense of of what can't you see um that's why we're linking that to their them their vermin it's like we you you see you see one rat you know there are 50 you can't see and urban myths like that it's like there's this sense of not only can you imagine that there's all these rats in the walls and under the streets, but they are smart and they're building things and they're changing things and they're affecting politics. Um, and I've been very yeah, gratified that I can sort of put these emotions into these books and then people will speak them back to me or, you know, um, yeah, talk about experiences they had. You know, that's, that's so cool. um, um, you mentioned as well earlier, um, yeah. that, you know, there's a bunch of movies and things that have inspired that that have yep. fed into this relics as a project. Um, two of the things that immediately jump out to me about uh, when you were describing stuff in particular, but also like just generally, um, two things that jump out to me related to this theme is one on the relics front. A lot of the stuff you were talking about reminds me very mildly of Warehouse Thirteen in that yep. a lot of the Warehouse Thirteen magical artifacts are vaguely scientific but not really and then uh a lot of whereas yours is like you know these magical items are fucking angel power in them uh and stuff Mm. like that and so that that was something that immediately sort of came to my mind but also the arguably the most famous movie about angels from australia gabriel yes um which is one of my have, favorite angel movies. It's surprisingly like it. It was made for this tiny budget, and 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 it's a bit rough. But it's got a lot of 
like juicy quotes in it um, and meaning to it. And there's about five or six quotes from the movie in the book. Um, and I didn't really, that was one that I didn't know about until I started working on this picture, on this project. Um, and one thing I was, I, I wanted to do was just do tons of research. So I said, you know, send me everything you've ever heard of or, or watched about angels. And someone mentioned Gabriel and I tracked it down. And yeah, it's, it's very much a relics game. Um, you mentioned the prophecy earlier as well, which is a great, yep. uh, which is a, a great ish movie. There's some parts of it that are like, Ugh. but um, it's, uh, it's uh, the prophecy was very, again, this is thing comes back to what we were talking about at the very start in the, in the early nineties, the prophecy was one of these films that just everyone talked about. It was like the crow except about angels. Mm. Um, it was very, very popular with those, with goths and the people that, who were into that kind of storytelling and it really kind of defined angels because of that. It was just so massively popular. Yeah, I mean that that um the central premise of that movie is repeated in a lot of an- angel media, and I don't know if it comes from other yeah. things, but the central premise of there's a second war in heaven because one of the other angels is going actually hang on a minute, Lucifer yep. was right. My favorite part of that movie, though, is when Lucifer turns up and is very annoyed at Gabriel for stealing his shtick, basically. He says yeah. very different language, but is like, you don't get to be the evil angel. I'm the evil angel. Um, yeah, Viggo Mortensen, long before he was very famous, has like one scene in that film, and it's astounding. Um, yeah, that is the reason I watched that movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's fantastic. Um, yes, but yeah, the, the 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 movie Legion has like the same premise. Yeah, yeah, Legion um, is very close. Yeah, uh, um, and then Legion has like a spin-off show, which is fucking a wild show. In the middle of that, in the middle of that period of TV, when we had all of the all these post-apocalyptic TV shows coming out, or like mid-apocalypse yep. shows, somebody released a show that was like, oh, it's a post-apocalyptic show. After angels destroyed the world, and it's like yeah. what? Um, that that show was pretty wild. You know, it had some good mm. results. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. It's interesting all the the angel stuff you can draw from. How much non how much non Christian um, angel stuff did you draw from? Like other Abrahamic? Yeah, I mean. <sighs> One of the things that we, we tried to play around with, and it's, you have to be careful, is that that, um, that angels have... We, we wanted to give the sense that angels are perhaps even beyond Christianity. That Christianity is just one attempt to understand them. Um, so one of the things actually really was the first idea I had is that there's a, a concept in um, Christianity and Catholicism which is known as the, uh, the, the tetramorph. There are these four shapes of God that, that God can take on or sorry, that angels can take on, um, uh, the lion, the, the ox, often called the beast, uh, the eagle and the, and the human or the man. And um, this actually goes all the way back to uh, Babylonian myth and the Akkadian myth um, of these four shapes uh, being the four shapes of angels or gods. And you can see it um, if you look at sort of Babylonian um, uh, mythology and, and uh, you know, carvings and things like that, you'll see these figures repeated over and over again. And they got absorbed into early Christianity. And then they also got absorbed into the New Testament Christianity during the Middle Ages where they were 
revived again and assigned to one of the four gospel writers. So it's something that you'll see in very, very ancient, you know, mythology um, from from you know, ancient Babylon, but you'll also see in a church that was built in the, in the 20th century because they'll have the four saints, the four, the four gospel writers, and they'll have one of those four uh, figures up on, you know, on, on the corners or something. You can see it driving around Sydney. You'll pass a church when, and you'll go, there they are. When you said the lion and the ox, I immediately could guess what the next two were. And it wasn't because of my Catholic upbringing. It was because of the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes movie, where the ah. Masons have uh, feature prominently in that movie. And so there's a whole bunch of yes. sonic magic imagery is there. And I didn't even realize that they... That, that was in Christianity. I figured, oh yeah, that's just Victorian era mysticism being all like, it's, ooh, the exciting Orient and stuff like that. I figured it was just they saw, they learned about some Middle Eastern scholar thing and were like, yeah, we're going to make a, a fake religion out of this in our weird cult. You'll also notice that uh, if you we use the tarot deck and the uh, tetramorph appears quite often through that. Um, because, and again... You're right in the sense that it was in Christianity, but it was also something that in the 19th and early 20th centuries, people were like, oh, no, this is this is much more than just Christianity. It is something that you, know, you can see in the tarot, which means it was this, this sort of occult symbolism. Um, and that, that was why it was a perfect choice, because it gives you this, this sort of sense of there is an Ur mythology that has been interpreted in one way in Christianity and interpreted another way in occultism, and it's trying to describe the same thing. That's really wild um, to think about that sort of stuff. Um, I love it. I could talk about it for ages, but unfortunately we're running out of time. Um, I wanted to take a quick minute to talk about when does your Kickstarter go up for Relics? Because yes. it's quite very close to Kickstarting. Yep, I- uh, April 10th, so that is 40 days away or so. Um, At time of counting- recording. It's actually probably yeah. just happened. Yes, um, it will be on online right now. Um, the game has been, we've been working on it for over two years. I mean, GX was two and a half years ago. Um, in right, yeah, so it'll be March two years soon. April. Yeah, um, but we were in, that was like, we were showing off what we had already then. We'd been working on it for six months or something before then. Yeah. Um, Kickstarter is, is ready. We are getting videos and art together to show it off. And um, yeah. We will have links presumably below this lovely podcast to, to direct you to it. Um, we have links below to the Kickstarter as well as um, anywhere else that people should look for you. Um, yeah, so I'm uh, Tinstar Games is my company. So it's tinstargames.weebly.com. W-E-E-B-L-Y is how you spell Weebly. And Tinstar Games is as in terms of the metal. Um, you know, like a... Reference. Like, a like in the Old West. Badge, right? Yes, yeah. that's right. Um, and you're I mean, on Twitter we have, as well? Yeah, on Twitter is at Tinstar Games. Um, and on Facebook, we have Tinstar Games and a, a Relics page of ourselves there. So you can find out all sorts of info on there. Um, and ask me any questions you like. Um, I'm, I'm online all the time. So find me on Facebook and Twitter. Um, usually tweeting bad jokes or stuff about game design. Yes, or stuff about the game de- games industry is uh, also something you can find on your Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was wonderful talking to you as well. Um, if you enjoyed listening to this interview, we have interviews with a bunch of other Australian game designers. You can click on the Australian game tag down below. Or if you just want to listen to more interviews, you can click on the interview category at the top of the main website. 
Um, if you're on, if you're not on the main website, then you'll have to go to insertquestia.com and find that where you can find a bunch of links to the other stuff we do. We also do actual plays, uh, so you can check oh. those out. And on that note, we have we should have on the on the website um, or on the Kickstarter site a link to an actual play that I'm doing next week um, with the guys on the obligatory RPG um, podcast, obligatory RPG show podcast, yeah. uh, which is part of the Boomer Radio Network. So I'm doing that next week, um, so you'll be able to listen to people play the game as well. Excellent. Hopefully, we'll have a link to that on this on the show notes for this episode as well, um, because I'm all about promoting other podcasts uh, and voice to new games and things like that. But it was a pleasure to uh, talk to you, Steve. I'm glad that we got to do this. Uh, and I hope that your Kickstarter goes well. Yes. That's, I mean, it's all, it's all sort of up to that last little bit. We've, we've done all the work. Um, I've got some amazing artists uh, and, and um, talent lined up to, to make it beautiful um, and, and put it into people's hands. So hopefully people will, will, be excited as well and want us want us to, to get there and get it out. Indeed. So if you want a copy of Relics, you're going to need to go back it on Kickstarter and you can find the link down below. But for now, farewell from the past, I'm Ray.